introduce you to three big characters this morning. Three big characters, Josheb, Eliezer, and Shema. Now, these guys aren't big characters, and what we'll find this morning, we're starting this series, and we're going to be looking at some characters who are usually, more often than not, one step removed from the, the main characters, the main actors in these biblical stories. These three men were part of a group of 30, 30 men who were known as King David's mighty warriors. There was a group of 30 of them that he would lean in upon when times were tough. And uh, except these three here were the leaders of these three men. And what goes on here is Joshua is known as somebody who slayed uh, 800 Philistines. All right? That's a pretty good record. Eliezer was a guy who, again, took on the Philistines and defeated those. And it said at the end of one battle, his hand was frozen to his sword. Okay, so in such a big, hard day's work, I don't know, some of you guys might have experienced it when you've had to work with a chainsaw and you, after a few hours, your hand's frozen to the chainsaw. So you can just sort of imagine what he went through. But Shema was the leader of them. It doesn't exactly say his exploits, but he was the leader and uh, he was the, the, one of the finest warriors. Well, the story goes on like this, that it was harvest time in Israel. Harvest time is when all the men had to go back and do the work around the home, harvest the fields, bring in the wheat and the barley, the grain, and ensure that everything was done. It was all hands to the deck, you know, because if it starts raining in the middle of harvest, you lose the crop. So it's very, very important that everybody is there. But these three men realized that their king, David, had some deep concerns. And David was out in a, a valley, a rift valley called, uh, the, in the caves of Agilim, okay, in the Valley of Rephaim. And in the Valley of Rephaim were the Philistines. These are the nemesis, if you like, of Israel, the people who gave them the most amount of grief, the tribe through which Goliath came. Okay, and here was David in this cave, in this stronghold, and we don't get any impression that he was there with anybody at all. Not even his military friends were there. But these three men came and found David in the cave of Agilim, and he was looking out down upon the Valley of Rephaim and off to the township of Bethlehem, his hometown, where he saw that the Philistines were occupying the town and occupying the valley. And by doing this, we can only imagine that David's heart, <coughs> excuse me, David's heart would have been really breaking. Because Bethlehem was his hometown. This is where his father, Jesse, his household, came from. This is where he was raised. And they'd already beaten the Philistines many times before in battles, but somehow they'd encroached again. And so David was there considering how it is that this problem had started, what could he do about it. But it was harvest time, and his army wasn't available, except these three men. These three men, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph Eliezer, and Shema. They came because they wanted to be with David. They wanted to know what their king's heart was. They wanted to feel what he felt. They wanted to concern themselves with his concerns. And so here the story starts. Let me read it with you. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David to the cave of Agilim, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. 
carried it back to David. Amen. You know, in this battle, in this battle called life, there are always going to be enemy camps that we need to take on and break down. And these three men went from their domestic duties and they moved into their their warrior duties. They went from domestic duties to spiritual duties, didn't they? And they came from the center of Israel to the fringes, to the front fringe, in this case, the front line. And here they found that they were needed by their king because God had taken David on this journey to consider how the enemy had started to invade their valley. Thanks, Rick. And so their valley was now swarming with Philistines, the Valley of Rephaim. David's hometown of Bethlehem was filled with Philistines. And I stop and I look around our community and I think to myself, here we are living in Bethlehem in Tauranga. And I think, how often do we stop and we ask ourselves, how much is the enemy camped in and around our district? Like, we've seen this, this outpouring in recent times in the last five years of, of drug abuse. Just this huge rise in mental illness, isn't there? And there's a, a real desperate time amongst young people in particular with cutting and, and suicide. And I stop and I think, wow, this is when the mighty men need to step up, get out of their domestic strongholds and come to the front line, get out of the safety of the harvest and making money and coming to this, this front line. When I was uh, over in Prague one time, I uh, went there for a conference, and um, I went on a tour, a day tour, a half-day tour, just out to a, a little town called Kutnahora. Kutnahora is famous for two things. The Firstly, it's famous because it's got a, a, a little church there which is decorated with the bones of 40,000 people. Okay, 40,000 people. So you've got chandeliers made of femur bones, you've got all these weird and wonderful things, okay? It's quite a story. But right next to it is a, is, a, is a factory, essentially an old factory, where they used to mint the coins for the Czech Republic, okay? And so men would come in and they would take the molten silver, which had been mined not far away from here, and then they would put it in a die and they would whack it, whack the die with a hammer. Within 12 months of starting work at this coin mint, the people who did the hammering made the coins. The people who made the money were stone deaf. Were stone deaf. Couldn't hear a thing. They started off with uh, tinnitus, is it? Ringing in your ears. And then they went into harder hearing to being totally deaf. And it just reminded me, you know, how it is so much the case for us in the Western world, and that if our focus is on making money, we too can go deaf. We too can go deaf to the concerns and the heartbreak that is in our society. And the, the, the thing about God is that he's always wanting us to be on the front foot when it comes to helping others. Now, I've had the opportunity to spend some time over the last few years with other denominational leaders, meeting with the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister. And we go and talk about things like poverty, about children, talk about social housing and the needs of the disenfranchised and the disadvantaged. Every time I walk away from those meetings and we hear from them what they're doing with government policy, I realise that we, the church, are the final backstop. We are the last place, the last resort. We're the go-to, even for the government. 
Because even they, at the higher echelons of power, look to us and say, when it's all said and done, there's only so much we can do. And then people are dependent upon the mercy and the grace of others. And that is us, the church. So when we talk here about moving from that place of harvest, the place of the domestic life into the front line, I'm addressing every one of us. Because every one of us is called to the front line when it comes to helping somebody else and making a difference. We're all called to that place where we've got to stop going deaf because we're making money and hear the cries of the poor and the needy and those who are at the disadvantage but could be advantaged just by a helping hand from us. You know, I love how it is that in the life of our church, you've got people stretching out, pushing out, pushing out in different ways. Um, the, the Good Neighbor Project that continues to prosper and do so well in the life of our city has been started by folks in the life of this church. And they moved hundreds of tons of food. And every year they do it. And they reach out to people who are really disadvantaged. But we can't ever despise the day of small beginnings. Things start from a mustard seed of faith being exercised. I remember when we arrived here in this church 22 years ago, um, Makeda's parents and her brother had started a cafe downtown called Florentines. And this isn't a free plug for Florentines at all because they, they export the majority of their food now. And, um, but at that time, they had a cafe. And Michaela would go down there uh, many nights in the week and she would clean out the cupboards or clean out the, the uh, servery of all the food that hadn't been sold and then she would do a little tour around the Bethlehem district around here because we live just down the end of the road, made it nice and easy. And she would just simply deliver food to all these families. And uh, our kids would see these filled rolls and sandwiches and pies coming to school the following day. So the kids would see where this food was going. So it was really exciting. And Michaela used to love doing this at the end of the day. And then as we started building as a church and developing, we set up a, a food bank called Soul Food. Changed its name now. It's called Kai Manga, which means food for the soul, food for the body. And we see how it is now that we give away hundreds and not thousands of food parcels every year out of the generosity of supermarket owners who gift us that food and uh, out of your own pantries. When we have the opportunity to call upon you, you take it seriously. And we're just so thrilled to be able to be a blessing. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Because when we look at the answer where we're looking for the mighty men and the mighty women of faith, the first person we've got to look to is us. That's why we've got these pictures here. Because this, these pictures are God's answer to the, the needs and the challenges that our community has. And so for David and his mighty men, the thing that excites me the most is to see them go from warriors to water boys. They step down to serve. And this is the heart of a servant. The heart of a servant steps down to serve. It wasn't beneath them to go and get their king some water. And so I see this around our own church here. You know, I just, I just love it how on a, on a Tuesday night, I come down here and there are men and women serving the young people with the icons programs. I just love it on a Sunday seeing so many people invested in the children's ministries in the, uh, in the um, music ministry here, people here at 6.30 in the morning waking up the neighbors. It's fabulous, okay? And we're seeing this everywhere. I was talking to uh, Dennis Fulton a while ago. Now, Dennis would be 
I'm guessing a man's age, maybe in his 60s. He's been retired for a little while. And uh, Pat Thompson, our children's ministry leader, got hold of him and said, Dennis, we need some grandfather types in the ministry out in the children's area. And so Dennis is there with bells on. He said, I used to do children's ministry when I was younger. He said, I love kids, but I just thought I was too old. No, not at all, said Pat. So he's out there and he's got kids crawling all over him and he's loving it because he gets to do what he did 30 years ago and he's never dropped the passion for it. He's gone from middling in the middle to the front row, to the front where the activity and the action is. Now, 20 years ago, I'm sounding like a real old man, aren't I? But 20 years ago, I can remember going to a Baptist hui in November and I traveled to New Plymouth with Pastor Jim Hearn. And uh, it was great, as you'd imagine, traveling with Jim. Jim passed away earlier this year. But uh, we were chatting away, and Jim said, hey, when you get to this conference, where are you going to sit? And I said, well, all my buddies from uh, Theological College and I, we usually sit at the back because we're the youngsters, you know. And uh, he goes, no, no, no. If you sit at the back, what happens is somebody says, let's go off and get a coffee, and you all do. And I, yeah, I went, yeah, that's right. <laughs> During the business meeting when they're talking about finances and things, we'd slope off and get a coffee. Jim said, no, you've got to come to the front, Craig. The front is where the action is. The front is where you get to meet people and you understand how this whole thing works. When you come to the front, you'll get asked to do different stuff and you'll grow and you'll learn and you'll do all this. And so I said, okay, Jim, wherever you go, I'll be with you. So I sat with Jim for the whole conference and I sure, I got to meet all these people I never thought I'd meet. And... Uh, <laughs> I suppose the end result's here, isn't it? I've been the national leader for six years because they had no one else to ask, probably, you know. <laughs> national leader of the Baptists. But you see, we are called to be water boys, even though our reputation might be as a warrior. And the beauty of this story is that God um, takes us on a journey. Mighty men do the impossible to prove it is possible. Okay, that's what this story is all about. The story is not about water. It's not about um, the, the, the thirst of David. It's about men who step up and take on the responsibility of taking advantage of what God will do to you, with you, and for you if you put yourself in the front line. The impossible is proof of God's existence. And I can only imagine what it would have been like for those, um, those three warriors, those three mighty men, they would have been good buddies, wouldn't they? Eh? Joshib, Eliezer, and Shammah. And you can imagine them, they, they had to go down through the valley where the Philistines were. And you can imagine them walking as they do, you know, three of them, sort of like a little, little warrior trinity. Two would have been walking to the front, would have been walking back with the swords out, and they would have cut their way through the enemy lines. And then the enemy would have gone, hey, we better go and protect our king because surely they're after the king. And so they would have run off to the king and then the three mighty warriors ran over to the well. Okay? And they would have been spying on them, looking at them going, what are they doing? What are they doing? Are they getting a drink of water? Oh. Where are they going now? Where are they going now? They're going home. Oh. Most unusual. Most unusual. But you see, for us, this story is not just a picture of, of men getting water. It's a picture of what Christ has done for us. You see, God has delivered in Christ the living water back to our camp. 
God has taken the living water of Jesus Christ and he has taken it back to the camp and you'll see what happens to it in a moment's time. But these men were prepared to live on the edge to lay down what it is that they thought they were proud of or had self-importance. Imagine if they had died in that little battle. What were the great warriors doing? Oh, they were going to get some water. Oh, they weren't going on to take the enemy on? No, no, just getting some water that day and they got killed. But they were prepared to lay down at risk their reputation. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And these ancients essentially operated by faith. They had what's called a prophetic imagination. I can remember reading a book when I was at Theological College by Walter Brueggemann called The Prophetic Imagination. Great book, and all I can really remember these days is the title. But the title's worth quoting because it simulates an understanding of what being prophetic is. Being prophetic is having a God-given dream, a God-given imagination of what your future could be, of what our collective future could be, of what it is that God could do with lives that come to the front line, not are fulfilled perpetually in domestic duties. A prophetic imagination is somebody who says, I'm prepared to dream a dream rather than live a memory. I'd rather dream a dream than live a memory. And the beauty of this, these verses is that um, a few verses on in the same chapter, it says this. It said, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. We are foreigners. We are strangers. This is not our home. This isn't the resting place for our soul. We don't have to play the game who wins the most toys wins, who gets the most toys wins. We are foreigners and strangers. And the beauty of this verse is it says that even as people died, they hadn't fulfilled their dream. In other words, the dream that they had was bigger than them. That's what a church has to carry, an intergenerational dream, a dream to be able to push back the enemy in your district and, and help change the community that you live in by bringing the love of God into that community in little ways, in large ways, in organized and unorganized ways. The dream needs to be big enough so that you sit around your breakfast table, your dinner table with your children and you say, I'm not going to be able to complete this dream, but I hope that you will. And I hope you dream a bigger dream that your children will be able to continue to transfer this, this, this reality of faith from one generation to another. That's why the ancients died not having completed what they were called to, because their dream was so big that only God could have filled it and only God could take it from one generation to the next. Is that a big enough dream for you? That we could dream dreams that are beyond our own generation, beyond our own lifetime? That to me sounds exciting. That to me sounds like it's God and God alone. God and God only. So what does the story do? Let's continue on in the story. It says, so the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said, 
Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their own lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. You know, the first time I ever read that story, I, I, just, I just gasped. I was like, wow, what an amazing thing to do. Especially if David was genuinely thirsty. What an amazing thing to do. To say, this gift is way too valuable for me to consume. At the risk of their lives, this water has been gained. And for that reason, it's gone from being water to be something sacred. Isn't it? It's sacred because it has value far bigger than just its property of being H2O. It is valuable because of the risk that has been attached to getting this. And David said, this is not for me to drink. It's way too valuable now. And so he, he pours it out as a, as a drink offering before the Lord. And you can just imagine him pouring that water out onto that dusty ground. And the three warriors going, hold on, what are you doing? You know, we just, and he goes, yeah, this is sort of like your blood. You risked your blood. This is an offering poured out. And that's why it's a picture of Jesus for us. Because a sacred offering, God's own son, was poured out on the cross. His blood hit the dirt. His blood hit that dust. And the people around him wondered what on earth was going on. Can you see the imagery there? Can you see how powerful this story is? As a prophetic image of God's son being sent to the front line. God's son sent to the front line to die for us and be poured out as a sacrifice for each one of us. Erwin McManus said this. He said, The future is created by those who have the courage to step into the unknown. To step into the unknown. You know, the known is just what we have in front of us, isn't it? The known is the known. What's the future going to be in 20 years' time? 10 years' time even? Well, that's only known by those who have a prophetic imagination by those who have the ability to dream dreams, not live memories. And as we dream dreams, we can put our memories aside, forgetting what is behind, pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And I just got to say, I, I, I don't obviously know all your history, but if your history has some hurt in it, if your history has some pain in it, then God is always the God of the new beginning. God is always the God who says, Use your prophetic imagination to understand what your future could be. Live on the edge. Put it out there before God and say, God, use me. I want to be a water boy for you. I want to move from the middling in the middle to come to the front line, to be in that place and space where I can be used in a prophetic way and change the world around me. The future is created by those who have courage to step into the unknown. Well, this morning we've seen it happen already when we had Michaela, Liana, and Hadley all be baptized. Um, they don't know exactly what their future is going to be, but they know that they've just made a bold step and put their hands into the hands of a living God. That is the most exciting thing anybody could ever do. They've gone from middling in the middle and put themselves in the front line. And they're saying, God, here I am. And when you see... This happened with young lives excited about God, excited about the future. Yeah? Yeah. 
you know that God is going to use you, but you have to stay in the front line. You have to sort of walk around with your hair wet for the rest of your life, as if you were just baptized yesterday. Okay? You got that? Because that's where God wants you to be. If you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much room, Michaela. You know? That's where it's all at, Liana. You agree with me, Hadley? There you are. Good man. Good man. You see, we are inspired by our young people, and therefore we need to dream a dream that's big enough for them. Big enough for them to believe in it, big enough for them to step into our shoes and, and take it. That's what God calls us to do. And mighty men and mighty women of God who come to the front line to be used are the ones who inspire us, who challenge us, and allow us to stop and look in the mirror and say, who me? Yes, me. You too couldn't be. Yes, it is. That's the way God's always done it. And if you're never going to be convinced, just remind yourself as I do, that God takes the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And, he, and on my worst day, I'm reminded that he used a donkey to speak. Isn't that great? God can use us. He only wants our availability, not our ability. Why don't you stand with me? God, we thank you that we can go to Scripture and find stories of people that reflect us. People who are prepared to go from the middle to the front line. People who go from domestic duties to warrior duties. People who lay down their reputations and become water boys. God, this is what you celebrate. This is what the ancients were commended for. A dream big enough to dream. A dream big enough that we can't swallow it, a dream big enough that we can't even fathom how it would ever happen. And so, God, we thank you for these stories, and we're so grateful to be a community of faith that we're called to demonstrate faith at every level, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our recreation, with our families, with our friends, Lord God, and the total stranger whom we don't know yet. So, God, we thank you. We thank you that you're the God of the impossible. And when we put ourselves in your hands, all things are possible. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 God bless you.